This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I have a very interesting topic for you, and um, I, I, I want to say a couple things to frame it. Um, first, I want uh, to have this really as a conversation. Uh, certainly anything I'm going to say tonight should not be taken as received wisdom. It's really my own sort of uh, clumsy effort to make sense of my work. Um, but it's led me to very extraordinary places and experiences, and, and I wanted to share those with you tonight. The reason I say that about conversation is the work I was doing in East Africa, where I uh, worked in Kenya for several years, um, was often characterized by meeting people from very different worlds whose uh, even conception of reality, of causality, basic things like truth or certainty uh, or belief um, were quite different from each other. And we actually came to uh, a consensus the dialogue itself may be the epistemology of our time. Uh, we're faced with extraordinary um, uh, dimensions of pluralism in modern communications and travel that we've never seen in the world before. So really, I'm interested in, in what your thoughts are uh, and, and want to present this really as the beginning of a conversation on this renewed uh, this phenomenon of uh, this renaissance or renewed interest in the use of psychedelics, both uh, in medicine and more broadly, in their potential uh, as therapeutic agents, um, the fascinating uh, pharmacology that's associated with them, and we'll go into that a little bit, uh, and also probably the most important thing um, that I want to emphasize tonight is how, how can we revisit uh, the, uh, this whole area uh, and avoid the mistakes of the 60s, uh, not to say that there weren't successes of the 60s. I think there certainly were. Um, but how can we do it better? Uh, what have we learned from uh, the time uh, that these agents have been in wider circulation from the rather substantial uh, writing that has occurred since the 60s on the use of psychedelics in various settings? Um, I want to come back to each of those issues to some degree with you. Um, but I think, I think I just want to emphasize that uh, my focus for tonight is really approaching this topic as a physician uh, with attention toward uh, healing, toward how to uh, work with these agents uh, in a way that is uh, beneficial for people, safe. Uh, in the world of trauma, you know, it's uh, safety and trust, which are the most important elements uh, that should attend a therapeutic encounter. Um, those are the things that really mean a lot to people who have suffered from trauma. Uh, and when you're talking about agents such as we're going to talk about tonight, the power is enormous. Uh, the induction of an altered state experience can, can make a person, uh, really can shake their worldview and uh, can be attended by enormous vulnerability. So it's important that the work be done uh, properly with the proper ethical guidelines and that uh, um, where possible, uh, our roles as healers or physicians is to make sure that the patients or the participants are safe and, and supported. Um, 
I have to talk to you about, you know, we, we had planned this talk, uh, I think, maybe four or five months ago now. Um, as many of you know, I'm uh, a principal investigator with uh, a very interesting trial here at UCSF uh, on post-traumatic stress disorder and the use of uh, MDMA, which uh, also has the name ecstasy, which we don't usually use since... The street names of ecstasy and Molly and these things uh, often refer to substances that are uh, have several agents within them. Uh, the clinical trial that we're doing, of course, uses pure MDMA, um, and it's um, it may be quite different than many of the uh, anecdotal and case reports that have been reported with the use. Uh, of ecstasy in club settings. Uh, so that's an important uh, point that we'll come back to. But I have to tell you something that I'm, I'm sorry about. When we pl- planned this a few months ago, uh, we had just finished the Phase two trials with M- MDMA, uh, which have been really interesting and encouraging. Um, and we weren't sure when the Phase three trial would start, but the, the, the good news is the Phase three trial was approved and is, has been started uh, at UCSF and in a private practice setting here in San Francisco only about three weeks ago, so it's recent. The bad news is that I just came back from FDA and DEA meetings where we were advised uh, that since I'm a principal investigator, I can't talk about the trial. Uh, the, <laughs> the phase three trial is, a, is, a, is an FDA-registered trial, uh, you know, clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, it's an investigational new drug trial for MDMA. Um, and the phase three trial is double-blinded with a placebo control. Um, and so uh, one of the prohibitions for PIs, for principal investigators, is that we don't talk about the trial when it's happening. And it's also, uh, it's also a media policy of UCSF for formal trials and for for, uh, the sponsor, MAPS. So I'm sorry about that. I can uh, tell you uh, that the Phase two results are published, uh, and they're available, and we're going to make them the the reference and possibly the article as well, but the reference certainly, and it's widely available, uh, on the the Med School website, on the Mini Med School website, so you'll have this. Um, suffice it to say that the, the phase two results were encouraging and the reason that the phase three trial was approved and is going forward. Um, so after lots of um, consternation about that, I decided I would tell you a little bit about my own experience um, with uh, these agents and particularly my own discovery of ayahuasca, which has been very important in my life. Um, and so... Uh, in doing that, I'm, I probably will uh, get into a few digressions that have to do with uh, how these uh, agents work, how we think about them, for example. Um, one of the things that I grappled with when I first uh, began to explore this, which is now more than 25 years ago, uh, was how, how do you know that a, a healer is a good healer uh, if you're out of... Our context. I mean, you might even ask the same question about doctors in the conventional setting. You, know, you don't necessarily go by their degrees, although that's usually what you know about. Um, and so I started asking that question a lot. I also uh, sort of um, began this inquiry, um, the slides I'm going to show you tonight, uh, sort of in, a, in various phases. And one of those phases was now about, uh, it was in the mid-'90s uh, when I decided 
that um, uh, the conventional practice of medicine was a little too narrow for me. Uh, at that time, I was on the faculty at Stanford Medical School. I was uh, in the division of nephrology. I was a kidney specialist and, and running a dialysis center and teaching uh, uh, residents and fellows in nephrology and medicine and, um, and doing a lot of high-tech medicine, ICU medicine, hemodialysis, and peritoneal dialysis. And I enjoyed it. I, you know, I was impressed with the technology and, and all that. But we were, uh, as many of you might know, uh, the way the specialties are, on the receiving end of people who were basically getting ready for dialysis. Uh, so we would uh, get them at late stages of renal failure. And I started asking the question, you know, shouldn't we be doing more prevention? Isn't there more that we can do uh, and all that? Um, that um, was a bit of a crisis for me uh, since those were questions that really uh, – the nephrology division wasn't very interested in it at the time. Uh, I'm not sure that they are now either, but uh, at that time they certainly weren't. They said that's what, what happens in general medicine, not in nephrology. We do dialysis. We measure potassium levels and, and potassium flux and urea flux and these kind of things. So um, I um, first, um, at that time, began to think... Um, more broadly, and I said, you know, I'm just going to change my practice. I'm going to start practicing integrated medicine more consciously. This was about 1994. Andy Weil had just published Spontaneous Healing. Many of us were thinking about uh, doing this in a much more holistic way, uh, but not wanting to leave our conventional uh, experience or expertise. Uh, I still was quite interested in, in practicing Western medicine. I respected it. I still do. Uh, I think there's a lot that uh, it has to offer. Uh, I also think there are quite a few limitations, which we'll talk about a little tonight. Um, and as part of that, I had uh, an unusual opportunity. I had an opportunity to work in a consulting role and take a sabbatical from Stanford and travel around uh, to work with alternative healers. Um, one of the questions that we were pursuing at that time was uh, how does uh, this model of integrative medicine fit into conventional medical centers, hospitals, and that? And what disciplines should we be looking at? So I traveled to China, and I worked with a group uh, in Shanghai and Hangzhou, uh, which is a high-tech center in, in southern China. Uh, we visited hospitals and worked with uh, practitioners there. This is a picture of an acupuncture center that is uh, attached to a, uh, an inpatient hospital, uh, very much integrated, this, this picture is a, uh, is a bodywork uh, room in the hospital where Twina massage uh, and bodywork is done. And, and we met the practitioner there who um, was doing uh, cervical manipulations and bodywork uh, to prevent people from going to neurosurgery. So pretty advanced disease, cervical disc disease and that, and no hesitation at manipulation, things that we were really nervous about, certainly in the Western uh, world, to say the least. Um, I also uh, was involved in a project. Um, so I was studying alternative systems, looking at Chinese medicine. We went to India, worked with Ayurvedic practitioners to some degree. And I also, uh, returning to some of my own roots, um, uh, worked with indigenous healers in the Americas. Um, um, in this particular photo, I was working with a group of indigenous people from this country who were doing recordings of traditional songs. Um, and this is with a group of um, people from the Seri Nation in southern uh, Baja California. Well, actually, actually, it's on the mainland side 
across from the southern tip of Baja, uh, just north of Hermosillo, if you know the area. This is the Seri tribe, also known as the Concac. Um, they are the custodians of the uh, Isla Tiburon, the Tiburon Island, which is a mating area for uh, whales and has a lot of um, special attributes. It's a reserve in Mexico. And we were there recording uh, the songs and prayers and healing uh, rituals of this man, who was uh, Don Chapo. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about this. So I took this photograph. I'm sort of standing right there. Um, the person directly in the middle, uh, Ernesto, was our guide. He was a um, he spoke Spanish and Seri and a little bit of English. He's actually hired by the U.S. Uh, Army as a survival specialist for survival in arid uh, lands. Um, so he had been in the States, and he was one of our guides. The other two people are, are uh, elders in the tribe, and the person in the very back uh, was a translator. Uh, Ernesto, in the middle, translated Seri to Spanish. That was a mixture of Spanish and Seri. Uh, the person in the back, Hilario, he translated Spanish to Spanish that I could understand. And then and I copied the the songs, and we transliterated, actually, uh, some of the songs uh, for the digital recording. Um, and Chapo was a really uh, interesting uh, healer, um, very, very well-known in the area. Uh, and um, no one knew his age, but people told me that he was 70 or 80, which was amazing to me. When he uh, when we told him why we were there, he was really, uh, really happy to meet us and took us up to this cave where he, um, he meditated and prayed and, and did various healing work. And, and as I, I was telling Suda earlier, um, when he took me out there, he was all excited about it. I was sort of running through the desert, and um, I had made sure I had my cowboy boots on because I didn't want to get any rattlesnakes and all that. And... and when we got to the cave, I looked down at him, and I realized that he had been running through the desert barefoot. It was the most incredible thing. It was just like big cactuses. I mean, big. <laughs> and so Chapo was unusual. Um, he, also, he also pulled out his rattle, and um, I, I thought, wow, now that's a real healer. It's, it's, it's a can with a stick of wood through it. And, uh, you know, I was, again, I was, we were talking about this earlier. There's an old, there's an old joke in, in medical schools that the, what, where you ask the medical student what's the most important part of the stethoscope. Some of you probably heard this. And, you, and it's kind of a trick joke. It's, it can be mean. I, I never did it that way. But it, it, the answer is the part that goes between the earpieces. Yeah. So, so when I saw Chapo, I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's the most important part of, the, of a ceremonial rattle. It's the part that's connected to the, <laughs> to the healer. Um, anyway, this uh, was what I was doing. This is uh, Chapo's, um, it's his uh, daughter-in-law, his, wife's, the, his son's wife, and uh, this is his grandson. And the reason I showed this is that one of the things I learned from working with traditional healers around the world is that they are eminently pragmatic. Chapa was well-known, and he had been treating this, his grandson for uh, about a week, and he said, you know, he's just not getting better, so I wonder if you'd take a look at him. <laughs> so, so, so he asked me to consult, and I went and saw um, his, his grandson, and I didn't have a stethoscope, so his, his mother held him up, and I put my ear on his back, and I think she was pretty taken with the maneuver because she just sort of watched. And um, I sort of concluded that he probably had a, an otitis. He was febrile and irritable and coughing a lot. 
tried to make sure that it wasn't a pneumonia or something like that, you know, and, uh, or meningitis, worse. And we drove to Mosillo from there um, several hours, I think it was about four hours, uh, to buy him some ampicillin and, and some acetaminophen uh, for his fever. He brought it back the next day. And she ran out two days later holding this, saying, he's better, he's better. And, and, and Chapo and I became good friends. Um, later, um, actually right, just a few, about a year and a half later, I also took a trip uh, down deep into the Copper Canyon, the Barrancas de Cobre, those of you who know northern Mexico. It, larger than the Grand Canyon, it's an amazing place, pretty much unknown and not very accessible. Um, we drove 100 miles to get to a small town called Batopilas, way in the canyon, uh, but it's on a road, uh, and this is Tarumara country, uh, also called Raramuri. Uh, this is an indigenous group uh, in northern Mexico that is a fascinating group of people, very isolated from modernity. Um, this uh, is an example of what you know conventional dress is among the Tarumara, and, and this guy was was actually sweeping outside my room, um, and. This is also a peyote culture, uh, and, and it is also um, historically important among Native Americans in the Americas because the Tarumara in that particular region was where a lot of Apaches fled to to escape the Apache Wars uh, in the U.S. So they're, they're called the Lost Apaches, and a lot of them are intermarried and intermingled with, with Tarumara. So I wanted to visit that area. Some of my family are Mescalero. Some are Pueblo, and so I had, had a lot of curiosity about, you know, more ancient ways um, from my own family. So I traveled into uh, the Barcas de Cobra also to work with uh, some of these people. And I just put this on there because I wanted to show you the, the, the road. This is a, the road that we drove on, um, which you can only go about 10 miles an hour. And when, when we were leaving, um, these kids started running after us, and I remember the Tarumara are famous for um, being runners. They were actually studied by Paul Dudley White and a famous contingent of uh, Boston cardiologists from Harvard in the 20s because they had a reputation for, for hunting by outrunning animals. Um, and, and they're really amazing. They have really big chests. It's kind of, and actually, they, they were actually found to have larger lung capacities, um, but, but they also run barefoot, and they're just... Anyway, these kids were chasing us because we had to go so slow on this road. And, and they, they, they ended up sort of gaining on us. And, and so I, I felt bad about making them chase. And, and, I, and they didn't look like they were going to stop. You know, I thought we got far, far enough away, they, and they kept going. And the Tarumara are famous. I, I was telling Suda that they, they can run like 20 miles with no problem. And uh, a lot of people sort of figured there's some genetic adaptation, and clearly there's something about their aerobic capacity. But they also have tricks. Um, they, uh, they load with chia seed, and some of you may have heard. So they, they eat chia and they drink water, so they create a gel in their gut. So they don't get dehydrated when they go on distance running. And it's one of the tricks that they uh, use. You know, there are barefoot races now in northern Mexico. I don't know if you've, the runners among you have heard. People come from all over to, to race. And, some, it's, and, and so these tricks are getting now discovered by runners. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was a sort of interesting thing. These kids graced us when, they, when I finally stopped with this incredibly dignified and beautiful portrait of who they are, uh, which shows, I think, um, 
One of the things that I learned, and that is that um, there is a there is a presence associated uh, with many of these groups of people that is very important in ceremonial healing, um, and we'll we'll come back to that. Um, and I couldn't avoid putting up this little girl that we saw a little bit farther down the road, and that and that was me in those days, <laughs> much younger, a much younger me. <laughs> So I want to tell you a little bit about ayahuasca. I first heard about ayahuasca when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley. Uh, I was kind of a uh, I was kind of a science nerd. I, kind of, <laughs> I really uh, liked biology and science, and particularly chemistry, actually. Um, so in my organic chemistry, um, I sort of came across this fascinating uh, uh, issue that the uh, the similarities of things like LSD, for example, or dimethyltryptamine, um, are, are very close to neurotransmitters. And, and we're gonna, I'm going to show you what that is. But I wondered about that because we were hearing lots of stories about psychedelics in those times, and I was just fascinated to, to uh, discover that and thought there must be some very important connection biologically. And we'll come back to that. Uh, somewhat... A few years later, I came across, across a book called the, Wiz, uh, it's called the Wizard of the Upper Amazon, I think it was called, uh, a book written by Bruce Lamb about an ayahuasca healer. And when I got to medical school a couple of years later, I was in Boston, and it was 1971, so it wasn't too much after the time when Richard Alpert, when, when Ramdas and, and Leary were doing uh, work on LSD at Harvard, and there was a lot of controversy um, I was fortunate enough to know some people that were connected with the laboratory of Richard Evans Schultes, who's a famous uh, ethnobotanist and the director of the Harvard Botanical Lab. Schultes always told his graduate students, you will not be an ethnobotanist until you have experienced ayahuasca, which was always was a very interesting uh, thing. He, and, and in the ayahuasca tradition, you know, the plants... Plants are considered sentient beings, uh, and ayahuasca is very much regarded as a teacher. So I thought it was fascinating that uh, Schultes, who was a, you know, was a professor of botany at Harvard, would, would be saying this. And I had uh, some experience with people in his laboratory, and there was this cast of characters moving through that was extraordinary. Wade Davis, Tim Plowman, um, Michael Balick, uh, the head of the Botanical Museum in New York, uh, Andy Weil. So I was hearing all these stories about ayahuasca, and one thing really stood out to me, and that was that uh, there were lots of stories of people communicating with animals uh, with ayahuasca. And so I was sort of intrigued by that. Um, I heard about uh, coming-of-age rituals um, where adolescent boys are taken by their grandfathers. It's an interesting story among the Tucano, which is a tribe in, in uh, the Amazon area, uh, Brazilian Amazon. Um, adolescent boys are taken in early uh, puberty from their, uh, their mother's hut, quote, by their grandfathers, not by their fathers. Um, so the, they don't have to worry about betraying the mother, I guess, or something. So the grandfathers are the, the ones that sort of take them out in the middle of the night to uh, go on a sort of a vision quest with ayahuasca um, so that they, one of the, th- the reasons is so that they can learn to um, not just sort of think like an animal but feel what an animal feels and also intuit what an animal is sensing. So there are stories about these 14-year-old boys being in, in the Amazon and learning how to fly and f- 
find where game game is. And uh, and there are stories about jaguars walking up to a ayahuasca circle and sitting down uh, as long as um, the energy's right. <clears throat> Some of you may have you ever heard of the Saint Saint Francis effect? People have run into that. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of stories about St. Francis, uh, who was clearly, clearly a, a Christian mystic, um, who, when he was in deep states of meditation and prayer, that he had such an abiding calm about him that uh, animals would come up to him. And there's a, there's a famous story about uh, these, these two geese, which were, like, really mean and horrible uh, <laughs> to everyone except St. Francis, and how they came up to him one time and sort of crossed their two necks over his lap and sort of laid on, you know, his lap. And so I, I, was, I was sort of intrigued by, wow, can the animals sense if we're in a better place and that sort of thing? Can, and does that enhance our communication, etc.? So... Um, all of this led to, um, again, a few years later, when I was involved with this um, job of studying with healers around the world, I thought, wow, you know, like there's a group that I should, you know, learn about. Uh, so I started traveling to Brazil um, in the late 90s um, to work uh, with ayahuasca healers. So let me tell you a little bit about what happens there. So ayahuasca uh, will come to, but it's been used for thousands of years uh, by indigenous people of the Amazon region. Now the ayahuasqueros in Brazil say that the earth is so threatened that ayahuasca is traveling, taking airplanes, and, <laughs> because it's a teacher. Um, and one of the most remarkable things, we'll come back to this, one of the most remarkable things about the experience with psychedelics, especially the tryptamines, and we'll talk about what that means, and ayahuasca is one of them, um, is that people often come away with, uh, from those experiences with a more uh, profound uh, sense of connection to nature. And in the ayahuasca traditions, nature is really regarded as sacred. Um, and I think to some degree people uh, connect with that. And I, I, I remember discussions with Michael Pollan and others um, where you know, people were asking, well, why is that happening? I don't think there's a good answer to it, but it is a widely experienced um, phenomenon, which is something that uh, we'll come back to. Um, in the Amazon, indigenous people often refer to ayahuasca as the vine of the soul or vine of the spirits. We were talking about trauma. Um, among um, certain groups in, uh, in the veterans uh, that work with veterans, for example, there is, a, there is an idea that much of the trauma that we see with post-traumatic stress disorder is not just um, trauma in the sense of victimization and all that, but it is also a kind of a soul injury uh, or moral injury uh, that's associated with having to do things where there's just no way out. You know, there's, it's, it's kind of no-win situations, a, kind of a Sophie's Choice type of situation where you're confronted with having to shoot at someone who might be a 14-year-old boy, for example, or get shot at yourself. I mean, these are kinds of, I think of them as injuries to your soul as a human being, things that no one should have to go through and which have really uh, profound effects. Um, and we could talk about that. The reason I mention it is because it was interesting to me that when... Um, 
I was there with ayahuasca healers. Uh, they, they, if you talk about these things, they'll, they'll say the medicine is really what you need to, to do. It will teach you. Um, people that were going to these retreats and the group that we worked with for several years are, are seeking emotional healing or spiritual development, but also self-awareness. Um, we looked at some of the literature. I mean, I did at the time what was written about it. And generally, um, there were a lot of positive responses. Now, it's not to say that there aren't uh, abuses and problems associated with this. Uh, ayahuasca tourism has become a growth industry. Um, and I, I, I don't want to disparage anybody you know, who's sort of trying to make a living or this or that. But it's simply to say that one of the things that we've learned from the 60s, uh, that we're, um, I think, more aware of now how um, what wisdom it represents is the importance of set and setting uh, with psychedelics. And so what do I mean by this? So these are terms that Ram Dass and, and Leary used early on when people were saying, well, what do these medicines do? And uh, Leary, for one, said, well, it seems to be the interaction uh, of people's expectations, the mental set that they bring, but also the setting, the physical environment, the people that they're with, uh, these, this interaction of set and setting, uh, which is a fascinating uh, notion. You know, in, in, uh, in conventional medical research, we tend to be more reductionistic in our approach. And interaction effects are not something that we study uh, very well, um, particularly uh, complex interaction effects. But it's very, uh, it's, it's very interesting to, uh, to think about that. In, in any case, um, during that time... Um, I was also um, studying a lot about ayahuasca, what was written, but I was also asking myself, so I'm going to meet different healers, and I had been going different places. I'd been to China and, and India and uh, a few places in the Americas, and I, I was sort of asking myself, what, what, how do I know if these are really good healers or not? And uh, the reason I'm going to tell you about Pablo Amaringo is because he's one healer that I worked with, who's an ayahuasca healer. Pablo um, is now, I think, f f famous uh, because he, he's the one that's done these uh, sort of very intricate ayahuasca drawings. He died about four years ago now, or five. Um, I came to know him very well and, and really respected his wisdom and his experience as a healer. Uh, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that as we go along. Um, Pablo... Um, was involved in the ceremonial uh, retreats that we went to in Brazil, um, now again more than 25 years ago. And Pablo would do integration. We're going to talk about that also. He would do integration by, with art. So after a person would go through an ayahuasca experience, um, they would have a session uh, with him where you would review your experience, and, and he, he would ask people to draw about it. Um, it's important to emphasize another point that we've um, had to, uh, again, revisit, um, particularly in the work um, with, uh, in the contemporary research with psychedelics, and, this, and that is this issue of uh, preparation and integration. So these are two aspects of experience with uh, these agents, which are often left out, um, that people are not really haven't spent much time preparing, um, and often after a ceremony ends or something, you know, they fly back a few thousand miles or wherever they're going, uh, and there's no real integration, nobody to talk to about it. 
Uh, it's often pathologized. They often are not sure what happened or how to integrate it. So preparation and integration are really important parts of this work and in some ways more important than the peak experience it, itself. Um, and Pablo would certainly understood and taught that, but his way of doing it, I think, was particularly interested, since, interesting since uh, people drew their results. Those of you who have done breath work, you know, uh, Stan Groff sometimes do, does this, uh, and sometimes people will draw. So it's a very interesting uh, thing. The point, I think, for, for, uh, for us is just to underscore that uh, with these agents, the preparation, and it's not just understanding the agents, but the, the most important thing about preparation is your intentionality why you're doing this. Uh, so it's important to, to know what, what you're praying for because you might get, you might get it, right? <laughs> so, so um, um, but also the integration as well. And that's one of the things that we're attempting to do with this work here tonight uh, and also among the faculty is educate ourselves better so that we can talk to people about these experiences in a more enlightened way. Uh, there has been a tendency to pathologize these experiences and just sort of set them aside as a drug effect. And I think there's much more going on there. Um, so we'll, we'll, again, come back to that. Um, so, so ayahuasca is two plants, uh, Bonasteriopsis copy which is uh, a jungle liana. It's a vine that grows to the top of the jungle canopy, sometimes 100 feet. Uh, it has an interesting feature, and that is that it's a sort of like a double helix. Uh, and uh, um, those of you who have read Jeremy Narby's book, The Cosmic Serpent, um, he, he actually goes into some length about helices in nature and, and, uh, and all that, uh, and their relations to, to symbols of transformation, like, like snakes and serpents. Uh, which is interesting. Um, among traditional people, their observation of the natural world can be orders of magnitude more refined than ours. Um, when I was down there, there was a giant sloth in the, in the um, canopy of the forest. It was a sloth that was... I, I didn't really know much about sloths. I hadn't really ever seen one. But they kind of look like they have long arms and they kind of hang on the trees. But this was up toward the canopy. And we were with uh, a Tucano guide, a young guy, who uh, maybe 30, who spoke Portuguese pretty well. And, and he had been sent to a missionary school uh, from a tribal village in Europe. He was sent to Switzerland. So he actually learned other languages. And he, he saw this sloth, and, he, and everybody had their binoculars, and he, saw, he was pointing to us right there. And people with their binoculars or without couldn't see it. It was the most amazing thing. There were probably 10 of us in a group, and no one could see it. All, the Westerners couldn't see it. It was just him and this other young kid that was with him that could see it. And I realized that that, that kind of sensitivity is not something that um, we're, we're comfortable with or, or in, in our sort of modern uh, world. Um, in medicine historically, particularly in homeopathy, but in other traditions as well, there's a theory called the law of similars. Um, some of you may have heard of it. Um, and this is where uh, remedies are chosen for some signature that they provide in nature, which suggests the phenomenon that they would cure. Um, so, for example, the law of similars would say that the plant looks like a, like a rattlesnake or something like that, that it may be useful for rattlesnake bites. Um, so the reason that, that I mention that is this whole sort of coil and, and um, 
uh, helix that uh, the copy vine grows in is part of Shipibo culture, which is a tribe in, in Peru. Shipibo actually have a word that translates roughly into English as twisty turny. And they, and they take it from the way ayahuasca grows, but it's their word for how things unfold in life, which is a really interesting law of similar. <laughs> the other plant in, in ayahuasca is psychotria. Psychotria is a shrub that is in the coffee family. And um, I should go back. Bonsteriopsis has a, has a chemical uh, substance called, called harm, the harmalines, which is a category, actually, of substances that are MAO inhibitors. These are monoamine oxidase inhibitors. MAO inhibitors are uh, a class of enzymes uh, that basically um, inactivate, uh, denature, or metabolically transform um, uh, monoamines, which is a certain class of chemical neurotransmitters or monoamines, like dopamine, for example. Um, so Bonsteriopsis has an MAO inhibitor in it, the harmalines. Psychotria has dimethyltryptamine, and we'll come back to this. Dimethyltryptamine is a tryptamine, it's, it's, and I'll show you a little bit about that. Um, it's um, related to serotonin. Um, dimethyltryptamine is a tryptamine nucleus. Serotonin is 5-hydroxytryptamine, so it has a hydroxy group on it. Uh, and dimethyltryptamine is the tryptamine nucleus with two methyl groups. Uh, so um, very similar to the neurotransmitters that we have. So psychotria and, dim- and DMT, dimethyltryptamine, are not active orally because if you, if you eat this, uh, it's denatured in the, in the gut by monoamine oxidase. But when combined with the bark, uh, with bonasteriopsis and the harmalines, the harmalines paralyze the MAO and uh, dimethyltryptamine becomes orally active. Now, this is a fascinating uh, example of pharmacologic synergy. Um, Wade Davis and the people that were from the Harvard Bot- Botanical Museum were studying this, and they were saying, you know, wait a minute, this was discovered like 3,000 years ago or maybe four, obviously in the pre-scientific period. How did people know this? Um, when they asked the, the healers, the indigenous uh, healers, they were saying that, you know, the plants talk to us. We communicate with plants. And I was talking about this years ago with someone. Uh, Michael Pollan had just written, you know, you've probably seen Michael Pollan's newest book, which is about these agents, How to Change Your Mind. But Michael Pollan at that time had just written a book called The Botany of Desire. And you might, might have read it. It has some very interesting chapters on apples and, and cannabis and other things. There, there's so much in this that... Um, I'm just racing through in my mind. What was I telling you about Paul? And I can't remember. Anyway, I'll come back to it. I'll come back to it. I was worried that my digressions would take me all over the place, and they will, and they will. Uh, but it's okay. Um, and, and part of the reason it's okay is um, this topic is an exploration in expansion of consciousness, really. Um, and... You know, it's there's a lot more there, and we can come back to it. Anyway, um, this is one of Pablo's pictures, which shows the two plants. Um, this is a, another picture of how ayahuasca is prepared, um, and the bark is pounded for long periods of time. Um, it's probably worth mentioning. Traditional healers um, will harvest only at certain times of the moon cycle, at certain times of day, and it's almost always associated with uh, certain prayers and songs. Um, So the plants are really respected 
in, in, a, in a whole way. I don't remember what I was telling you. So, so, so when I was reading The Botany of Desire, I was saying, you know, the plants communicate with people. And, and to me, I thought that was a big deal. I thought, wow, you know, you can, you can actually communicate with plants. And maybe they have a type of intelligence that's better than humans. That would be an improvement in my life. Um, <laughs> So, but I gave this talk to some people, and they said, "Oh, you're not a gardener." And actually, I I wasn't. I've changed that a little bit. But my plants always communicate with me, and and they were quite quite comfortable with the notion of communication. And actually, at the time, I, I did this whole search in the in the botany literature, and there there's actually a there's a discipline of plant communication. It's called plant semiotics, which is amazing. I mean, there are certain fungi, for example, that put out certain uh, excretory products that change the pH of the soil right around them. And people in botany, there's a whole story about it just being excretory products, but actually by changing the pH, they make it favorable for some bacteria that they feed on. Uh, So they're actually farming. (laughs) So so, anyway, um, this is part of the talk of altered states. Um, so let me come back to the, some of these sort of chemistry ideas. One of, one of the most amazing things, so l- let me just preface this. The work of, of many people, but notably Sasha Shulgin and others, there are two broad categories of so-called psychedelics. One is the tryptamine category, which is LSD, psilocybin, um, dimethyltryptamine. The other category is, um, uh, are called phenethylamines, uh, and they're uh, more like mescaline, peyote, San Pedro cactus, wachuma, um, uh, MDMA is in that category. Um, and the reason that that's important is this. Um, so this is epinephrine, um, more commonly known as adrenaline. Um, you can see that the similarity that uh, dopamine has to it and that serotonin has to it. Okay. You can also see that serotonin has something different here. This is the tryptamine nucleus. Okay. This distinguishes the tryptamines from the phenethylamines. Phenyl is this group, and ethyl is a two-carbon uh, addition there. So, um, and these are amino groups. That's how they get their name. So, why is that important? The the um, the tryptamine category. This group here as opposed to the uh, phenethylamine category. The tryptamine category are widely associated with uh, transcendent or mystical experiences. Uh, and for that, they have, have gotten the term entheogens, that they somehow access the divine within um, and give people uh, an experience of the divine, which is a very uh, interesting thing in its, in its own way. Um, and the... Uh, Phenethylamines, which would be closer here, but also included mescaline. And methamphetamine uh, is, again, you can see quite similar to, uh, to epinephrine. And MDMA um, is methylene dioxy methamphetamine. So it has a methylene group and two oxygen groups. And one of the things that you learn in organic chemistry, and one of the reasons I was so fascinated by this, is that small side chain alterations in biology can have enormous uh, physiologic and biologic effects. So you can have something that's quite similar, but have a methyl group or a a small uh, change in a a side chain, and the the molecule works completely differently. 
And of course, this, you know, in biology, this is an old story. This is the lock, lock and key uh, idea of receptors and uh, given agonists in biology. And this is one of the reasons for what we call biologic specificity, why things can be so specific in biology as opposed to in chemistry, where it's more principles of mass action. So this is an important uh, thing biologically. But, but what I was taken with is, wow, these are agents that somehow help with transcendent experience. These are agents that somehow uh, help with uh, more relational experience, and they're referred to as empathogens. Um, so the MDMA uh, category, uh, and the masculine is in that, somehow enhances uh, people's ability to connect with each other uh, and communicate with each other. And uh, we're um, very interested in that in some of the research that we're doing. Now, as we were talking about 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is here, and again, that's serotonin. Serotonin, you know, I think people have pretty much heard of that. It's a neurotransmitter. Uh, It's kind of... uh, the, all the, it's the molecule behind sort of listening to Prozac and all that stuff. Um, some people would say it's, you know, it's a happiness molecule, it's a joy molecule, uh, it's a spirit molecule, it's been called. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, neurotransmitter and uh, that's still not well understood. It probably is involved um, in, in sleep and wake cycles to some degree. Uh, and it's clearly uh, associated with states of well-being and joy. Um, but it's probably not a linear type of mechanism. So it's still being looked at quite a bit. And actually, the, the uh, tryptamines are an important probe for serotonin biology. Um, and so if we, we look at that, but we go back to a common precursor, L-tryptophan, which is an amino acid, and may, many of you may have run into it. It's also used uh, in the form of 5 hydroxy uh, tryptophan, which is here, 5-HTP. It's used as an antidepressant. It's used, it's used for sleep. Um, you can see that with, again, relatively minor substitutions here, the addition of two methyl groups, it becomes dimethyltryptamine. And uh, from serotonin, you can see that 5-methoxy-DMT is here and bufotenine is here. These are also fascinating agencies. Bufotenine is a, is a substance taken from a toad, actually. Um, and smoked, and it's used actually in southwestern tribes as a, as a, a source of DMT healing. It's, it's a fascinating story. Um, and, and part of what I'm doing is, is, you know, really from the tradition of, of Schultes and, and ethnobotany is talking about these agents in context uh, with uh, people and the people that use them, but also um, not as sort of agents by themselves, but really sort of the ethnobotanical approach, which is uh, how people understand them, how they use them, etc. Um, so I think I've mentioned this already. The synergism is kind of amazing, and I was telling that story that the people from Schulte's lab were saying that, asking ayahuasca healers, and they were saying they sort of communicate, the plants tell them, and um, Wade Davis actually did an analysis where they looked at the number of species of plants in the Amazon, and uh, sort of did a, a computation of how many tries it would take to find out this combination. And there was some extraordinary number of thousands of trials. Uh, so they concluded that serendipity was, was really pretty unlikely, that maybe these people are communicating with plants in a way that 
And uh, after uh, drinking ayahuasca with them, I no, no question that the ayahuasca communicates to me. <laughs> the, so a, a couple of other quick things about ayahuasca. Um, so oral DMT becomes available in the presence of the harmalines, which is the other uh, plant, the, the copy vine. Um, but the, the MAO inhibitors act as antidepressants, uh, and, and they have a, a duration of action that's longer than DMT. And it's, uh, it's one of the reasons that I think uh, ayahuasca is somewhat unique in that the integration is often facilitated by the plant itself, by the medicine itself. Um, for the two- to three-day period afterward, people often feel better uh, than they have. Uh, they have an, it has an antidepressant effect. It's often referred to as the afterglow. Uh, it's an interesting um, uh, phenomenon with, uh, with ayahuasca. Um, and it might be one of the reasons that trauma can be um, healed uh, because when uh, it's revisited with uh, s- some of these effects on the serotonin axis, on fight-or-flight type responses, uh, that the reconstruction or the reconsolidation of memory can be different. This is one of the mechanisms we think that's at, at work uh, in how PTSD heals. Uh, the reconstruction of memories of the traumatic event. And some of these agents appear to facilitate that. This is just a picture of how it's done typically. It's typically in the Amazon done at night. Uh, There are a lot of reasons for that, but uh, typically done as an all-night ceremony. Uh, And with special preparation, again, we've talked about integration. This is the preparation that people sort of have to put in some effort to get there. It's a bit of a pilgrimage, so you have to know... uh, that you're doing something special, and you really have to know why. Um, there's a special diet, which generally uh, is no sugar, no alcohol, and no salt. Uh, and if you're in some of the... There's some variation among the Peruvians, the Brazilians, and others. So in some places, they won't eat uh, any red meat. They'll only eat a certain type of fish. Uh, so the, the diets tend to be very uh, plain and somewhat restrictive, and people don't eat very much um, during this time. Pablo used to uh, used to say that that's one of the ways that you can get through this easier is to not eat not eat so much. Um, setting of intention is important, and of course the sudden setting, as I've mentioned, and uh, music and sound is an integral part of ceremonial healing. Um, someone once asked me when I was doing this work, and you know we were discussing it in a medical setting, like, so you know. What's different about what these healers do? And, you know, when I thought about it, I thought, you know, it would be unheard of to administer a medicine to someone who is sick in these cultures without saying a prayer. It just it just wouldn't be done. Um, and I struggle with that a little bit to sort of think about it. And, um, and I think for you know for me and, and maybe this will be helpful to you those those of you who have different theologies in mind that it, it's it's worth thinking of prayer as a form of intentionality. Uh, if you're in a non-theistic world like Buddhism, for example, you you might think of it as an aphorism, but it's simply uh, verbalizing clearly. Uh, sort of what you're there for and why you're doing it, that's really important because you're going to move into an altered state of consciousness. So those, uh, that intentionality is really important. And it's one of the reasons that, again, I emphasize to you that I've, I've approached this really as a, as a physician, as a healer, uh, not 
really in other ways. And so that tends to be a focus uh, for me. Um, And the other thing that I was alluding to is that it would be very unusual to have a healing ceremony, certainly in the Americas, without music and sound, without singing or music, uh, which is probably more important in healing than we're aware of. in our conventional world, it's not. It, it used to be part of healing. You know, the old Escalapian temples in, you know, in, in ancient uh, Mediterranean area were always associated with water uh, for healing, but also with music uh, and sound. Um, so, and in the Navajo uh, world, you know, um, beauty is considered a therapy. And walking in beauty is something that is important. And if you're not around beautiful things, things that are aesthetically pleasing, uh, there is a belief that you can get sick from it, which is, I think, I think it's a good thing to, <laughs> to uh, not just view it as something uh, for uh, recreation or art, but something integral to our experience uh, of life and also important in healing. Again, another one of Pablo's um, paintings, which we won't go through. I was I was uh, talking to you a little bit earlier about um, one of the phenomenon, and that is that um, that occurs with uh, in the ayahuasca world, and that is that people often experience a much deeper connection to nature uh, after experiencing ayahuasca. And um, and I came across this uh, rather interesting um, thing in Harper's. Um, 2009. Uh, this was a, uh, it was a, um, an advertisement for the American Indian College Fund. And the, you can't, I don't think you can see this small print too well up on the left. Um, uh, it says, Allison Two Bears, 30 years old, environmental science major, uh, Sitting Bull College in North Dakota, mother of two who's learning about echinacea from her grandmother and her ethnobotany class. I was sort of fascinating by that because it says to think Indian is to save a plant that can save a people. So I thought that was a sort of interesting uh, commentary. And this is, uh, you know, this is probably Plains culture. This is Lakota area, Sitting Bull College in North Dakota. But it shows you the similarities uh, in the indigenous world of the Americas uh, with respect to plants and people, for example. Um, So um, there's a lot more that we can go into, but um, I want to talk a little bit about some conclusions that I came to after that period that helped inform my practice uh, of medicine. Uh, And um, it's one of the things that we've tried to do in integrative medicine. Um, And I want to start by um, sharing with you some things that I wrote at the time um, that I was traveling there. Um, And it's uh, sort of some notes from my own uh, journal. And it has to do with the elements of healing. What we ordinarily do in in Western scientific medicine is is, uh, gather data and and make a diagnosis and render a specific treatment, uh, usually consisting of drugs or surgery. Um, technology, either alone or in combination. Um, But there's a larger um, process at work. Um, It's always present, sometimes chaotic or or mysterious, um, and sometimes miraculous. Um, It it, it encompasses and enhances the work of scientific medicine. In a sense, it's it's the context of scientific medicine, and that process we know is healing. 
Uh, healing is um, that sort of broader uh, response of the person to the trauma or crisis that he or she is facing. And uh, it is a biologic phenomenon for sure, but in the broadest sense of biology, and it, it includes the mind, the body, and the spirit. Um, our mind-body dualism, you know, we've, I think, come to realize is, is, uh, is a fiction, a con- convenient fiction for reductionistic uh, science, uh, but a fiction. Uh, they're, uh, they're really not separate. <laughs> and and um, uh, healing is that process uh, that includes uh, what a person experiences while they're getting a given uh, therapy. It's somewhat of a of a miracle always because it involves um, unique aspects to the individual and it's not entirely predictable uh, which is one of the difficult aspects with conventional medicine. We'll often use a given therapy for a patient. Some patients will get better and others won't and even though things are the same. So we sort of have this uh, idea in conventional medicine of host responses but the, but the larger question is sort of what's going on and <clears throat> the um, The thing that I think is important in this is that there is a unique quality to this experience with a given individual. This is one of the central paradoxes of modern biology. Modern biology, uh, in its uh, scientific sense, is searching for uh, underlying laws, so-called nomothetic science, or laws that are uh, applicable to all humans. But it's set against a rather uh, intriguing phenomenon, and that is that uh, and that is the uniqueness of the individual. Um, so we, we, we see this interesting problem in modern biology and certainly in medicine of people being, quote, the same, but also unique. Uh, and it's fascinating. You know, Niels Bohr, uh, a famous physicist who actually wrote a lot about uh, dualism and these kinds of ideas, uh, said that the opposite of fact is falsehood, but the opposite of a great truth is often another great truth. And I think that it's what we see in biology is that people are uh, both the same and unique. Uh, and it's a fascinating um, issue uh, because um, that uniqueness, I think, is something important for healers uh, to understand, to recognize, uh, and is a struggle for those of us who are dealing with medicine, which is largely um, in some Settings, a list of algorithms, <laughs> not exactly unique to the individual. But this whole business, this whole sort of question, when something really bad happens to you, um, you know, your life just about stops. In fact, it does stop when something really bad happens, and you, you're really in an altered state of consciousness. And one of the reasons we came to this study is realizing that uh, these agents are sort of an experimental laboratory for that. With major illness, um, you, you, you have three questions that just don't go away, uh, and they're just right there in front of you. And the first one is, what's happening to me? Why, you know, what, what is this? In conventional medical parlance, that's, uh, that's diagnosis. But to a person, it's a much bigger question. It's embedded in a whole life. It's not just, you know, uh, what's happening in a given organ or 
in a medical sense, it's what's happening in your life. Uh, it may be cancer or a, a major illness, but it's also uh, a big change in your life. And so th- this first question of what's happening to me sort of right there appears to you. The second question is what will happen to me? Uh, again, in the conventional medical world, that's prognosis. But to a patient, it's much different. It's, it's more like, will I be the same as I was before? Um, you know, what, what will change, you know? And, or as one patient once told me who had just had her leg amputated, who's going to love me like this? Um, and when she told me that, I sort of thought, wow, you know, major illness is like that. Tremendous loss of self-esteem, uh, questions about your future. Um, and and an experience that simply isn't represented well with, a, say, a diagnosis of, you know, gastric carcinoma or something like that. It's just much bigger than that. And these three questions, I think, um, happen everywhere in the world um, when something really bad happens, and they are the questions that healers around the world uh, address. What was the third question? The, th- <laughs> the third, I'm glad you reminded me. <laughs> the, third, the third question is, what will happen? And, oh, no, I'm sorry. The third question is, why did this happen? Right. So it's diagnosis, prognosis, and then why. And the why, you know, in, in Western medicine, the, the why question is often some sort of pathophysiology uh, explanations, like you got a microbe or, a, you know, a bacterium, and it caused this and that sort of thing. To a patient, the why question is, is often a, a crisis in meaning uh, or transcendence. Um, it's, it's in some ways a, a spiritual question. Um, and cancer patients often ask this, like, did I do something wrong? Did this happen to me because I, didn't, you know, I did something wrong? So there's kind of a moral injury or quandary associated with it. Um, and that, um, that why question is always a crisis in meaning, uh, sort of a big M sort of meaning of your whole life and small M. Uh, in the sense of this particular uh, episode. Um, and the people that are doing some of the research um, that's now very much sort of in the news, you may have heard of it, the research on psilocybin at NYU, at uh, Hopkins, and also here at UCSF. Uh, there are only three places in the country where this is happening. But psilocybin is being used in patients with uh, severe advanced uh, disease, uh, end-of-life situations, cancer, um, and, and others. Uh, to uh, deal with uh, uh, questions of anxiety and depression, etc. And the results have been positive. Uh, and some of the people that are doing this work, for example, some of the people from, New- from NYU who were here, said that uh, they're impressed with, with this, you know, this uh, common uh, comment that people are making, that somehow the psilocybin, uh, for example, in, can- in the setting of cancer and uh, end-of-life care, that it doesn't really change that, but they somehow have a greater sense of meaning uh, after experiencing the psilocybin, uh, meaning uh, in their life, understanding, for example, in a larger context, uh, the why question. Um, So it's fascinating. And Tony Bosses, who is one of the psychologists there, told me, he said, you know, this is interesting. We're, we're wondering if these are sort of meaning-making medicines in some way. And I thought, wow, that's a fascinating uh, notion. I mentioned that to a couple of colleagues, and they didn't like it. I'm not sure why. But, <laughs> but it's, 
I, I think it's interesting. Um, in any case, um, these sort of three questions really could uh, be used to summarize the whole history of medicine uh, and healing uh, as an attempt to answer these three questions uh, in ways that are both uh, that have depth and understanding but are also persuasive. And um, as I was uh, talking earlier with Suda and, and Selena, um, also because of their pragmatic uh, effects. Uh, you know, when, when I was showing you the pictures of Don Chapo and the Seri and he asked me to see his uh, grandson, um, I, was, I was impressed with that because, you know, I expected, you know, he might not like Western medicine or this or that, you know, but it wasn't any of that. And I, I was mentioning earlier that I came away, and I've seen this repeatedly with other traditional healers, too, that are good healers, uh, that healers are tremendously uh, pragmatic. There is a side to them that is pragmatic, uh, that uh, they tend to want to know what works and what doesn't. And I, um, I came away thinking that that has an aspect of humility in it, um, that they're willing to be wrong, willing to be ineffective, and willing to admit that and say, you know, what can I learn or what can you teach me? What's important is how the person is doing so it's a, it's a, it was a fascinating um, realization that I've come back to several times since as I've um, worked through um, this sort of question of what uh, makes a good healer. And, and we'll, come, we'll come to that in a minute. Um, I want to um, move on to this whole question of healing more broadly stated than just a given therapy. Um, <clears throat> and so, so after those sort of three questions, so, so you know, what do you do? And, and this is, these are some of the basics that that period of study led me to. Um, one of them certainly is empowerment. Um, it's, uh, it, healing is associated uh, with a sense of belonging, and, and in psychology the term self-efficacy is often used to mean that uh, if you decide to do something, you can make it happen in your life. There's a sense of empowerment uh, associated with healing. Um, <clears throat> and, that, and that part of that means that you have a sort of rightful place among the living. Um, and, um, but in order to feel that self-esteem and that sense of empowerment, there, there has to be some way of the person actualizing uh, himself or herself. And so we spent a lot of time with this, uh, with prosthetics and therapies and various things. Um, and it can be tricky uh, because there, there is uh, another side to it, a sort of counterbalancing uh, need for acceptance. Um, uh, some things simply are not going to be changed. Um, and so it's, it's tricky, but... Um, this overall sense that you can get through this, that you have the necessary tools and support, is important for healing, and that is the sense of empowerment. It's one of the things we work with in clinical practice. Uh, the best care is self-care, uh, since you're, no, you're not dependent on us. And we always, uh, I think we should in our practices, strive to uh, enhance that where we can. Um, the second element of healing is transformation or change. Um, Healing is always about change, and sometimes the changes are in areas that we think would never change. Um, they're often chaotic, out of control, 
types of changes, um, changes in areas that uh, you never imagined would happen. And for it to be effective, those changes, to some degree, have to be voluntary. Uh, there's a way that uh, this last point um, is important in, in that it's possible to reject healing um, by holding on to the very ways that it might have contributed to the illness. Um, so there is kind of a, a surrender, in a way, um, to the transformations that are necessary for healing. A third thing that we hear from patients very often, this is often, again, with cancer patients, is the importance of creative expression. Uh, healing involves some creative expression that was not present uh, formerly. Um, it's, um, it's, it's more than just telling the facts of your story. It's more, more like being a, you know, the protagonist in, in a novel that you're writing. Um, there's a um, much deeper um, understanding of how uh, your story is unfolding. Uh, it has nuance, and uh, and patients who are uh, doing or going through this will often say that you learn to wear your wounds with pride, and that is, I think, important in healing. Um, this kind of creative expression. Um, major illness is often associated with this tremendous loss of self-esteem. So people retreat; uh, they feel shame or guilt or something less than, uh, and that's why I think it's important to come through that, and uh, creative expression is often the way uh, that one can find that. Um, the quest for meaning uh, and transcendence is also fundamental to healing. Um, it, it gets to this question of, of um, the transcendent experience, for example, associated with the tryptamines, uh, the entheogenic experience. Uh, as I've mentioned, uh, major illness is often attended by this question of why. Uh, and so there is a, a struggle, an effort uh, to look at um, both the lessons involved and the challenges a major illness brings, um, but also a very a deeper reflection on the very meaning of things. Um, and finally, sort of last but not least, um, one finds in many traditions uh, in the literature of healing around the world uh, its connection to the experience of unconditional love or, or acceptance. Um, and um, the important point here is unconditional. You know, Rachel Remen years ago commented that um, the opposite of um, uh, unconditional love is not... Um, Hate or fear—it's actual—it's actually judgment, um, which is an interesting idea. Uh, that it's sort of this critical, evaluative thing that we're always embedded in to some degree, that needs to be suspended when a person is very ill. Uh, they need to be welcomed, received, unconditionally in the state that they're in, fully seen um, and loved. Um, so when I first gave this talk a long time ago at Duke. Um, <laughs> there was a there was a pa person a patient actually who came up to me after, and she said, uh, "Doctor, I wholeheartedly agree. I just wonder if you can arrange it." So, <laughs> so that's in the self care world, but inescapable, I think, uh, in the uh, phenomenon of, phenomenology of healing.
Um, so during this time um, in the in the mid nineties, um, I was traveling all these different places, and I was sort of wondering, like, okay, so I'm going to learn these other traditions and learn from these people, but how do I know if they're, you know, good uh, healers? Um, you know, and sort of asked myself that about healers in general over the years. Um, as a physician, I was I always wanted to refer to people that I thought were good and would want to know about them and all that. Um, and as I started sort of examining that question, there were several um, people that were sort of examples that I was sort of looking at. But I came away with these elements that I want to just share with you. Um, great healers, uh, on the first topic, great healers have a kindness in their ways. Um, they, they just do... Um, but it especially comes out uh, when they're in the presence of suffering. Uh, they're, they're, they just respond. Uh, in, um, but even in their most unassuming encounters um, with another person, I think great healers have a gentleness about them. Um, and I think this is important. Um, it could be covered up by time pressures and worry or other things, but uh, in general, it's never too far under the surface of a great healer, uh, their, their loving kindness. Um, they certainly have skillful means. They've um, spent time uh, developing proficiency, experience, and judgment. Um, skillful means are uh, important. Uh, and again, their pragmatism is part of this. Um, they're also joyful people. Um, they have done the hard work of taking care of themselves to some degree. Um, and um, they have a quality of this sympathetic joy about them, which is interesting to, to see. And uh, the few people, it's not, not that common, but the ones that are really great have cultivated that. Um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, once taught that sympathetic joy is the genuine joy that one feels at the good fortune uh, and happiness of others. Um, and it's, it's in Buddhism, it's one of the six uh, uh, perfections, uh, joyous effort, um, in the way of the Bodhisattva that comes originally from Shantideva, as you know. Um, it's kind of, um, it's that generosity of spirit and joyfulness of spirit that you bring to the encounter that has a healing uh, force to it. It doesn't mean you don't have your hard times as a healer, <laughs> say the least. But when you come to the work, uh, you don't bring that with you. And in, in uh, this whole issue of reverence is a, another thing. You know, uh, ceremonial healing in traditional circles is in uh, many ways a prayer ceremony. Um, and um, uh, when I was working with Pablo, one of the things I encountered were all these stories of shamanic wars. You've probably heard about these things. And one shaman sort of doesn't like another shaman, and they have their turf struggles um, and send darts to each other and various other things. It sounds like some of the cardiologists I know. <laughs> So, so I was asking Pablo, um, you know, what about that? What, what? Um, and Pablo told me this whole story about how 
he was very successful as an ayahuasca healer, and there was tremendous jealousy, and people thought he was making all this money and doing this and that, and he was getting all these darts, and so he had to just sort of make himself very scarce and you know not not be so visible. Um, and I said, what what causes that? You know, what causes um, uh, you know people? What causes those? sort of envy in those battles. And he said, well, it's often brujeria, it's often dark shamanism. And he said, and the, the quality of uh, dark shamanism is that when you think you own the power, um, that it's your power, uh, you've already stepped over the line. You're already... <laughs> uh, that what you are is a vehicle for the power of higher forces to pass through you. And to the extent that you're clear and open as a vehicle, it will pass through better uh, when you begin to hold the power to use it for your own uh, enhancement or self-aggrandizement. You've already sort of moved into the um, other realm. And Pablo at that moment told, told me something that I still haven't forgotten. He said, in the presence of the divine, it's reverence and humility which will save you. Um, as I was asking him also, you know, what if you have a really hard time with ayahuasca? He said, it's reverence and humility, uh, which is a sort of fascinating uh, idea just by itself. Well, I'm going to stop and give us a, a little bit of time to sort of collect our thoughts and, and close up. I'm so grateful to you all for um, listening to my inner reflections and meanderings um, there um, not very necessarily very complete or coherent, but certainly well-intentioned. And so I'm grateful, grateful for all of your attention. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a, I mean, it's a great question. It's, it's a great question. And Rick Strassman's work, you know, was with Pure DMT. Um, and he did a lot of the pioneering work on, on DMT, uh, some of the uh, basic stuff. Um, so there, there are a lot of there, there are some aspects to comment on. DMT is relatively short acting when used um, as pure DMT, whether it's given perennially as an injection, or snorted, um, or smoked, which are the, the ways that it's done. <clears throat> it definitely commonly produces an altered state and often mystical or transcendent experience, uh, often associated with uh, entities and beings of a otherworldly sort. Um, Ayahuasca is different in the sense, I mean, it's the same in, in the sense that DMT is there. What's different about ayahuasca is that it's orally active. So the absorption of DMT is much slower, and it's uh, in the context of the harmalines, which are MAO inhibitors and have independent psychotropic effects. They're antidepressants, as MAO inhibitors are, and they're longer acting. So my opinion is that um, DMT is very powerful in its own way, but it's very quick, and people often are left with this um, sort of sense that, wow, something you know, very unusual happened, but I'm not sure what it was. And I'm not saying that, it, that pure DMT doesn't have a role. I'm just saying that in, in my experience, it's much shorter and it's different. Um, it is being looked at as one of the tryptamines that can enhance meaning. But again, um, it's hard to say... And probably I should emphasize that we think that these agents 
are uh, powerful and important, but we don't think they should be used alone. Uh, we think they should be used with therapy, both before, during, and after. Um, and this is why we often refer to this whole area as, as a type of medication-assisted psychotherapy uh, to emphasize um, the importance of therapy, both before, during, and after. And as we work with trauma patients, even more so. But I think for, for people in general, that these experiences are often what Maslow called peak experiences. They're very profound. And if a person doesn't have support in integrating them, they, they can often f- sort of fragment them and sort of split them off to the side where they really just don't know what happened and it, and it isn't helpful. So I think the, the, probably the main answer to your question is all of these agents should be used with therapy. I haven't been to Vietnam, but I, I have done exactly that uh, with uh, other traditional healers and other doctors uh, in several places in the world, most notably Kenya. I worked in East Africa for almost eight years uh, and worked with a lot of uh, traditional Maasai healers, for example. Um, and, and, and I agree with you. I think there is a spiritual yearning uh, in, the, in the U.S., um, and... Um, the, the, people have commented that it may be one of the reasons that there's a sort of renewed interest uh, in these agents. Um, and, and, and there are a lot of different aspects to that. Um, and it's, it's not to... Um, uh, there are a lot of issues that have to do with religion and all that. But, but suffice it to say that um, when we refer to spiritual growth as an experience of greater meaning or the transcendence of some sort of earthly limitation. Uh, I think that it, it can, those of us who work in sort of the secular humanist institutions of the world, non-religious like UCSF, can use that language to explain it. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think there is a spiritual uh, yearning. So it's a really great question. And... Um, uh, really important for all of us. I, I think uh, I, I would just point to those people, you know, that you work with who have these special qualities and make an effort to spend some time with them, like I did with Suda and Selena, who are other healers who have a healing effect on me. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, the self-care for, for healers is really important. You know, we, we often... Um, tell the residents, you know, that it's hard to take care of the patients when you're sicker than the patients are. Um, and, and on the topic of these series, you know, in global health, there's an aphorism that there is no health without mental health. So even for those of us who are physically doing well, um, if, you know, you have a lot of sort of fear, anger, grumpiness, <laughs> there's some healing to be done there. And um, uh, it's important uh, to do that uh, as a healer, the self care job is uh, important not not just for you but for the people that you work with as well, the other people in your life so yeah um, in fact, some of the work that we 've done has really actually been focused on that, trying to work with healers uh, for for those exact reasons they, they often get left out <laughs> well, thank you so much. What a pleasure to be with you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.